Good evening, everyone. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm, I'm Rob Grindy, uh, and I'm one of the elders here at Grace, so hopefully you do know me. Hopefully I've been around. Um, but it's great to be back in front of you tonight. Uh, last time I was here, just over a year ago, you allowed me to bore you to death with a history lesson on the Reformation um, and why it still matters, which, for the record, it still does matter. Um, but tonight should be a lighter, breezier topic, uh, hopefully, in a lot of regards, but and maybe in some, a little bit heavier. Uh, we as elders were asked to give our testimonies on Sunday nights to help fill the gap left by Pastor Greg while he was on sabbatical. Um, but you needn't fear, he'll be back serving our church this week, and I believe he'll be teaching again very soon. So until then, like it or not, you're stuck with me. Um, so let me start with a word of prayer, and we'll get going. Father God, thanks so much for this time we live in, a time where we can worship freely in our country without fear of persecution, enslavement, captivity. Thank you for your goodness in gathering us all here for a time of fellowship, giving me the opportunity to speak to our beloved body of believers. Lord, you are the mighty king of the universe, maker of all we see and don't see, master of heaven and earth. So God, I ask for your blessing on us tonight, and I petition for you to make it plain how you've worked in and through my life, that my mistakes and faults would not be seen as a dark stain upon your glory, but as a wonderful example of your grace upon a wretched sinner. Lord, if there are any here tonight who don't know you, that they would begin to realize your love and adoration of sinners like me and how trusting in you with their lives can lead to an eternity of joy and celebration in your presence. We love you, Lord, and we're so thankful for the blessings you've given us, namely your son, Jesus, without whom hope would be lost. Uh, we pray and ask all of these things in his name tonight. Amen. All right. Uh, well, everyone, on this last Sunday before Thanksgiving, I felt that it was probably appropriate to start by telling you the thing that I'm most thankful for. That's why I didn't stand up. I was waiting, so apologize for not doing that earlier. Uh, obviously, at the top of my list of thankfulness would be the Lord and his daily presence in my life. Um, like many of you, he's been an active participant since my earliest years. Uh, some days I wish I had some cool story to tell you of how I was born again, rising out of tumultuous ash, uh, depravity, and of maybe seeing an actual light and feeling as if a freight train had mowed me down. But the reality is that God was always with me. Uh, he was always there just biding his time until I was ready to make my faith my own. Uh, so I was born... Uh, in Northern California on an Air Force base just north of Sacramento, where my dad worked as a newly enlisted airplane mechanic, uh, and my mom as a seamstress at the local Macy's when they actually used to have those at Macy's. Uh, they were both still very young, married only a few years, and just 20 years old when they had me. We were pretty fortunate as a military family, moving only a few times over the course of my dad's 20-year career, from California to Illinois, back to California, and then we settled just outside of Sacramento again. Uh, we didn't move around a lot. Uh, I was always going to school with kids whose parents did get transferred to various bases all over the world. And as such, uh, I made friends fairly easily, learning how to engage in small talk at a young age and being as affable as almost anyone. Now, I realize that you may look at me and think there's no way that this man before you is as easygoing as he says uh, that he was as a child. But uh, I assure you that while I may appear rather gruff, I am in fact a huge teddy bear, uh, which leads me into the, my first of many rabbit trails tonight, and let's start with my face. So I have this crease that goes right here uh, along the, uh, right above the bridge of my nose. I get that from my dad. Um, I have a clear memory of sitting with my family at the dining room table, 
and creasing my forehead just like this, looking at my food in disgust or something, and uh, there was a crease. Uh, and I remember my mom leaning over and saying, Robert, stop scowling. You're going to end up looking just like your father. Well, to her, that may have seemed like something that would deter me, but it in fact uh, inspired me. And so I would practice making this face in the mirror until over and over and over again. Um, and as an eight-year-old boy with nothing but veneration for my dad, I couldn't have wanted anything more than to look like my father. Um, so of course, um, like I said, I would keep practicing and practicing until finally one day I looked in the mirror and it was just there. I didn't have to make a face. It just existed uh, there upon it. Um, as if it was a folded piece of paper unable to return to its actual state of being beforehand. No bit of ironing could have eliminated it. Um, so uh, I had a mark tying me to my father for life uh, where we are smiling but we are also scowling at the same time. It's a very unique circumstance. So if it appears as if I'm scowling, um, or casting a disapproving stare, I assure you, uh, so long as no unkind words are following, that the perpetual line above the bridge of my nose uh, is just there. It's just how I look. Um, a quick sidebar also to my face. I do realize I have this ridiculous thing on my lip right now, and I realize it looks ridiculous, and I'm not commenting on all mustaches. Some, like Jerry, can pull off a great mustache. I am not one of those people. Um, I'm under no disillusionment about that. This is a very temporal accoutrement to my uh, lip region and added merely as a phenomenon of Movember, as some of you may know, where men from all over the country grow various forms of facial hair. In my form, in my line of work, I can't grow a full beard, we're not allowed to, so I just have to have this ridiculous thing that appears on my face before you. So it's just a result of an attempt at camaraderie. Some do it for charity, we do not. We're just trying to be good friends. So that monstrosity will be gone in exactly 12 days. Um, hopefully sooner, uh, but yeah, that would be to my wife's chagrin if it stayed on the whole time. So there, there it will stay. So moving from my face now to my body, I'm by no means a man of small stature. This too could potentially add to the incorrect assumption that I am not approachable. But again, I assure you, this large physique before you loves to give hugs. Um, and the secret love of hugs goes well with the not-so-secret knowledge that I am at the very core of my being a crier. And I am a terrible crier. I'm an ugly crier uh, when it happens. Uh, I cried when I hit my first home run at six years old for joy. I cried when my brother graduated in high school, as the picture you see before you, um, over sadness and also joy. I cried when I got married. I cried when I got engaged. I cried when all three of my sons were born. And pretty much any time I speak publicly about anyone that I care about, I will cry. Um, Oh, and don't forget, also, most of the time with commercials, movies, television shows, and uh, definitely musicals. So, that's me. <laughs> All that to say, if you can overlook this crease, overlook this ridiculousness, uh, you should be able to reach the conclusion that I am, in fact, quite affable, easy to talk to, and approachable, at least I hope that you do after tonight. So, let me fast forward a bit and get this story moving. Uh, the training I had in my early years regarding fast friendships really served me well in high school. Uh, once my family settled into a church after a recent move, uh, I began attending its youth group. I quickly signed up for the next available event, which happened to be a missions trip down to Mexico. Uh, knowing no one, I hopped aboard this van and we drove down. And the very first morning, um, I ran into two guys and they asked me if I wanted to climb this hill to go see this cross at the top. Um, to which, of course, I, I jumped on board and, and was more than willing. Um, so it was on that hike that I first realized there was actually something to this whole fellowship thing that I'd heard so much about. 
one of those guys in particular, his name is Ryan, um, talked about his faith in a way that I'd never heard from a guy my age. Um, he read his Bible daily. He prayed regularly. Um, he prayed for his friends and family. He had an uncanny thirst for everything and anything to do with the Lord. Um, and I didn't think that that was possible. So after that climb on the hill, the next morning, before we set off into Mexico to build houses, I sat on a quiet slope by myself with my prescribed daily devotional that the leaders had given me, um, and I began to read through it. I read through this passage in Matthew 19, where Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. And since we haven't yet, and it's always good to do so, if you have your Bibles or have some kind of electronic device and you want to open it at this time, um, go ahead and do so. We're going to be looking at Matthew 19, starting in verses 16 and going to 31. I'm going to be reading from English Standard Version, so feel free to follow along if you have it. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciple, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So I realized something on that hillside that morning. Naively, I felt that I had kept all those commandments. That wasn't my problem. I had healthy fear of the Lord and his judgment that kept me in line. I also felt that I had nothing really to give up like the rich young rulers. So wealth didn't uh, come to me to have to give all of that up. Surprisingly, the verse in that story that struck me the most was verse 29. When Jesus mentions what will happen to those who have left everything they knew and everyone they loved for him. I realized that if asked, if called, I would not do that. I could not fathom it wasn't a remote possibility leaving everything behind, especially my family. And it led me to the conclusion that if I was not willing to forsake all others for Christ, that I could not be safe and secure in the salvation of Jesus like I thought that I was. On that early morning, as the sun was barely peeking over the trees, I handed my life over to the Lord and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, asking forgiveness for my sins and fully committing to a life with Him as my King. As I said, nothing shocking or surprising. I was just another sinner in need of a Savior, accepting him without much pomp and circumstance this side of heaven. I do not even remember telling anyone until a few weeks after it occurred uh, that I had actually given my life over when we were debriefing the church on our current missions trip. So there you have it. That's how I came to know Jesus. But fortunately, the story doesn't end there, and it only gets better. 
A few years later, I moved to San Luis Obispo, uh, fresh out of high school, and ready to tackle the daunting campus of Cal Poly. As many college kids do, I bounced around to a few different majors, um, trying my hardest not to waste too much of mom and dad's money, uh, while also trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do with my life at the ripe old age of 18. I eventually settled on a degree in English and resigned myself to what 80% of my family did, which was teaching. Um, but then I started to hear a different type of calling from that vocation. In between classes, I'd begun attending and eventually assisting in leading a college ministry in San Luis at First Baptist Church. I very rapidly went from a casual attendee to a rabid fan of any and every ministry opportunity. I participated in a series of discipleship classes that dissected multiple subjects of theology, and I couldn't get enough of it. I slept, ate, and breathed theology, soaking in whatever resource I could, uh, and eventually became reformed along the way. I became determined to make my life's work about serving in ministry in some way or another. After my junior year of college, our church offered a summer-long missions trip centered around theology and evangelism where we could uh, essentially go and witness to other event, at other events and tell people about Jesus. We, together with another 20 kids, uh, were going to be, discipled, dis be discipling and witnessing at these events. I was so excited to participate in this missions project but ultimately, God had other plans. Disappointingly, due to various medical issues, I was forced to spend my summer back home in Sacramento. Most of my friends participated in the project, and I missed out on what I felt had been an amazing opportunity. Upon my return that summer, my friends in the ministry had made quite a few new friends that had participated in that missions project and were now actively participating in our college group. Instead of feelings of jealousy, I looked forward to expanding my new circle of friends with these other believers. Within the first two weeks of my senior year in college, our Sunday night ministry had a guest speaker who would share a testimonial. Uh, I arrived that September evening with my friend Sam, who was both my roommate and my best friend. Uh, we sat in the middle of the sanctuary. We did not dress like that. We were a little more uh, sophisticated. Uh, we sat in the middle of the sanctuary as we usually did, and the lights went out, music began, and I was immersed in another wonderful night of worshiping our Creator, forgetting the world around me. And as the band closed in prayer and before the speaker took the stage, I sat down next to Sam and casually whispered to him about how awesome it was to be back after a summer away. He agreed, and we settled in for what we figured to be a normal message for college kids. I couldn't have been more wrong. What happened next still seems so fresh and vivid as if it had occurred that morning, this morning. The lights stayed off, and a single spot shone on the pulpit to the left of the stage. Our college pastor was standing there introducing the speaker, a young gal who shyly stood just outside the fingers of the spotlight. Unable to tell who it was, I leaned over to Sam and asked if he knew who was giving their testimony that night. He shook his head, and we both looked toward the stage. Just as I did, the most beautiful woman, oh, sorry, that was, that was wrong. The most beautiful woman I had ever seen stepped into the light and into my life, and she wove a tale of sadness, of heroism, and the faith, of likes, uh, the faith, faith the likes of which I had never seen. I could not believe the things she had been through and the outlook she still had, trusting in the Lord when most others would have understandably cursed his name. I would share that testimony with you tonight, but that's for her to share, not me, and I admittedly would not do it any kind of justice. Uh, I sat there transfixed, hanging on every word she said. Never before had I seen a woman so beautiful display a life that was equally as beautiful with her obedience to and love of the Lord. The half-hour story flew by, and before I knew it, the house lights uh, came on, and we all stood up to go. I walked back to Sam's truck in a dream state, hardly saying a word as we drove home. Once back at the house, I asked Sam if he had seen that girl up on stage to give her testimony, to which he replied, uh, yeah, Rob, I was sitting right next to you. We both were watching the same thing. <laughs> I told him right then and there that I was going to marry that girl no matter what it took. 
And of course, he laughed and we said goodnight. I spent the next few weeks trying to time my decisions and locations in such a way that I would run into this girl. Our college group was not that large, and being the affable guy that I was, it was not difficult to speak with her. But I ran into a major obstacle, namely that I was not as big a deal as I thought that I was. Sure, I was leading a men's Bible study and involved with leadership of our ministry, but that didn't mean squat to her. The first time we officially met, I saw her walking toward the back of the sanctuary after the next week's college service. I purposely strode back there, timing my interest into the welcome area in such a way that our eyes would meet, we would lock eyes, and she would fall madly in love with me. <laughs> or so I thought. Needless to say, it did not go as planned. We did lock eyes, and she politely smiled, and I grinned like an idiot. I walked the ten paces over to her and introduced myself. Hi, I said, I'm Rob. She said, I'm Katie. And nice to meet you. I said, you as well. And then nothing. She walked away with her friends called to her, claiming that they had to go. So strike one. The next week, I did the exact same thing. She walked out. I walked out. We met in the back, and I introduced myself a second time, just in case she actually didn't know who I was. She also introduced herself a second time, with no inflection in her voice to suggest that she had any recollection of who I was from the previous week. I asked her if she enjoyed the service, to which she politely replied she did. Then her friends called her away a second time. Strike two. The following week, a repeat of the previous two. This time, I thought I'd add some levity. Presuming there was no way she couldn't remember who I was, uh, I walked right up to her in the back and said, Hey, Katie, how's it going? She politely said, Good. How are you? And to which I jokingly responded, Good as well. I'm Rob, just in case you didn't remember. Thinking this was so far outside the realm of possibility, there wasn't the slightest chance that she couldn't remember. Her response was heart-wrenching. Oh, well, nice to meet you, Rob. <laughs> As if she would say that to anyone who introduced themselves to her for the first time. She gave no indication on her face and her voice that somewhere in the depths of the last two weeks, she actually had any idea who I was. So, strike three. I was, I was devastated, admittedly. All I could muster was a quick, uh, hope you have a great night, and I walked away right over to Sam's truck. I had no idea how this was possible. How could she not remember me? Me, of all people. Three weeks in a row, I had gone out of my way for this woman to make introductions and engage in the small talk that I've been practicing my entire life as this Air Force kid. But I was determined not to give up. The fourth week, business as usual. She walks to the back. I fall on the opposite side of the sanctuary. I very sheepishly say, hi, Katie, do you remember me? Uh, followed by, I'm Rob. To which she exclaimed with a smile, yes. Nice to see you again. Finally, now that I had her attention, I took full advantage of the opportunity and talked with her about anything and everything I could. After a few more weeks uh, of chance occurrences, I asked her if she wanted to grab a cup of coffee. And a year and two months after that first date, I saw her walking through the doors in the back of that sanctuary uh, in a dress that was as stunning as ever, and it was of this white wedding gown. Of all the bozos she could have married, she chose the one with the crease on his forehead. <laughs> I thank God every day that she trusted his plan for her life by marrying me, even if she had no idea what she was getting into. So I'm going to do a quick fast forward for my life with a couple key words, so follow along. Marriage, move to Sacramento, youth ministry, differing ideas of ministry, volunteer ministry, substitute teaching, volleyball coach, track coach, basketball coach, substitute Spanish teacher who didn't speak a lick of Spanish, <laughs> landscaping, UPS, Costco, CHP Academy. And I'll slow to a stop right there. At this point in my life, it's 2008. I'm a 27-year-old new police officer, recently moved to Buellton and working in Santa Barbara for the CHP. 
My bride, Katie, is newly pregnant with our firstborn, Nicholas. Everything seems to be going well, and what happened behind the scenes was a little crazy, but also awesome. We struggled for a few years financially, and more importantly, while trying to have a child. Uh, when I finally had a job with medical benefits, it enabled us to look into what exactly was going on. Even though most infertility comes out of pocket, I made enough money that I could pay for any tests that came our way. Um, Katie had to take a certain pill once a month, and we would get pregnant. That's all that it needed. Uh, not too bad, comparatively speaking, to what a lot of families have to go through. The second month of taking the pill, we got pregnant, which happened to coincide with my graduation from the academy, and nine months later, Nick was born. Life was going pretty well. Not a lot of complaints. Shortly after moving to the Central Coast, we began attending Grace here. She gave birth to Nicholas, and we settled in to a very comfortable life. I was enjoying my new job. We were part of an amazing Sunday school class that functioned more like a small group. We bought a house in Santa Maria to move closer to Grace uh, and to our friends. And around that time, we went back to the doctor to see about getting a few more of those magic baby pills. Uh, turns out that the prescription to which Katie had taken up in Sacramento uh, of one per month was entirely wrong. Our current doctor sat us down and he educated us on exactly how the female body worked and that she was supposed to take the pills once a day for a week and that we never should have gotten pregnant with them the way that we had, uh, from a biological standpoint anyway. We immediately chalked it up to the Lord granting us a child in his providence. We began trying to have another kid around 2010. One month turned into two, which quickly turned into 12. Uh, we went in for more tests and discovered that unless God did another miracle, we wouldn't be able to have any more biological children. Not to be deterred, uh, and with both of us always knowing we would adopt at least one child, we began researching our options, ultimately deciding after much prayer and petition to pursue foster adoption. We went through the classes, home studies, and all the other trappings involved with child welfare services until we finally settled on what we would do. Uh, we were certified to receive a child in the summer of 2011. One crisp Saturday afternoon in September, we got the call. I can remember where we all were. I stood outside while Nick was playing, and Katie paced along the grass in our backyard because cell phone reception in our house was terrible. She hung up the phone and came over to me crying, telling me that we were going to have another son. Which, if you know Katie, she is the antithesis of me as a crier. She cried at none of those events that I mentioned. So this was a big deal. She told me that we were going to have another son, and that his name was Matthew. Uh, though we would call him Maddie, he was in the neonatal intensive care unit at Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital, as you see there. His mother had three children previously taken away due to a heroin addiction before, during, and after pregnancy. So Maddie was a shoe-in to be a part of the Grindy family. We went down to see him within the hour and immediately fell in love. His only abnormality was a cleft lip and a cleft palate, which may have been hereditary or it could have been due to drug use. Uh, we don't know. He was our son, but see, that would be the problem. We tried to fill the missing piece in our family with a false narrative provided by the county that he would indeed be our son. Um, tried to give Nick, uh, our firstborn, a little brother, only to be crushed. We cared for Maddie for the first nine months of his life. We expressed milk into his little mouth because he couldn't nurse a bottle with his cleft lip, uh, only to watch him cough it out of his nose as too much milk went through his cleft palate. We cared for him and nursed him back to health after an excruciating surgery, uh, all while his mom went through rehab. Ultimately, the county decided on reunification uh, with his mother over permanent placement with us. We were devastated. We ended up caring for another little boy named Zane while Maddie was still with us, but he was placed back with his mom shortly after we lost Maddie. Two potential sons stripped away in a span of two weeks, and the kicker for Katie and I was shortly after both boys went back to their mothers, we were driving down Broadway, probably to Food Max or something like that, when Nick, in his car seat from the back, uh, says up to me, Dad, it's my fault that Maddie and Zane left, isn't it? 
and I couldn't hold it together. I had to pull over, calmly trying to explain to my three-year-old how it was in no way, shape, or form any fault of his. We haven't participated in the foster care system since. We believe in, pray for, support, and encourage those that choose that path. And in know in our hearts that even spending a week with those kids is better than nothing and can increase their quality of life exponentially. Uh, but so far, our hearts haven't healed to the point that we've been able to participate in it again personally. Nevertheless, we were determined to continue the expansion of our family. Ultimately, we learned about, we learned about this amazing organization called Snowflakes. It's an embryo adoption agency, which means that couples who go through in vitro fertilization and have embryos created in a laboratory um, have a couple of different options after all of their attempts at having children have stopped. They can, A, continue to have their embryos cryogenically frozen until they choose to try again or pay for the store and pay for the storage of the embryos. Um, B, they can have their embryos incinerated and stop payment. Or C, they can adopt them out to willing families, um, similar to sperm or egg donors. After thoroughly researching the process, we proceeded to pursue embryo adoption, which not only could save the lives of those embryos whom we as believers feel are each individual lives, but we could expand our family, give Nick a sibling, and Katie could be pregnant again, which was another of her heart's desires. So, in the fall of 2012, we went through an extensive month-long uh, process of, uh, filled with countless drugs, needles, and pain until the doctor implanted two embryos. To our joy, Katie got pregnant, but it wasn't in God's plan for her to stay that way. She miscarried a few weeks after the procedure. Feeling like this was our best shot to have more children and passionately striving to save the lives of more embryos, we tried again the following spring. Here she is in the hospital. We went down to LA. I looked through the microscope at the Petri dish uh, where the doctor was going to take the embryos out of, and I observed these two little blobs on the screen, similar to the slide you just saw. The procedure went off without a hitch, and we found out shortly uh, after that that Katie was pregnant again. This time, the pregnancy was viable, so after a month or so, we went back to our infertility doc for a follow-up. He hooked Katie up to the ultrasound uh, and counted not one, not two, but three embryos uh, had been there. One of the two had split, and we were going to be the parents of triplets. After picking my job off the floor and prying Katie's eyes away from the computer screen, we were overjoyed. We felt that going through so much turmoil and heartache with Maddie, uh, the Lord had blessed us continuing to trust him. Turns out that God also decided we as parents are only fit to care for boys, as all three of these triplets were males, and we affectionately named them David, Samuel, and Joshua. As if carrying triplets wasn't stressful enough, we found out that one of the three, Joshua, was smaller than the other two. The doctors determined that he did not appear to have any kidneys, which was stunting his overall growth, including the restricting the development of any lung tissue, almost ensuring that his birth would be fatal. Katie and I began to prepare for the worst. Many of you in this room prayed for us during that time and during those tumultuous months. Um, through it all, my bride was radiant and displayed a resolve focused on the providence of Christ, the likes of which I have personally uh, never seen. Fortunately, <clears throat> she was able to carry the boys to week 33, four weeks short of a full term, which was quite a feat considering the fragility of Joshua. If he hadn't been struggling like he had, the doctor said that they, she could have delivered them all naturally. But due to Joshua's sensitivity, on October 17, 2013, she was induced. Dave and Sam, they came out just fine, but Joshua struggled almost immediately, uh, and they immediately hooked him up to a breathing machine and began pumping his little body full of oxygen. Even in her drug-induced state, <clears throat> they wheeled Katie over to all three of the boys in the NICU at Marion. As we looked at the doctors, nurses, and breathing technicians uh, working alongside of Joshua's little body, we silently cried and prayed for his little life. 
An ultrasound of his organs showed he was in fact missing both kidneys and had such little lung tissue that it was only a matter of hours before his body would give out on the breathing machine, effectively bursting his lungs. Katie and I knew uh, that there was this potential going in, and we had already decided uh, that there was no way we would let our son suffer such a painful death. Um, Confidently, we let the doctors know we were going to pull him off of that machine and hold him in our arms. See, I told you. I stopped there. I held it. I held it. Swallowed it. Okay. Uh, We'd hold him in our arms as he slowly went to meet his Savior. I feel so blessed that we were able to hold and watch my youngest son uh, for three hours and six minutes. Nick said it best, though. A few days before the triplets were born, we were on our way home from Moana, talking about Joshua's probable fate and how it would be okay to be sad if he died. He looked at me with curious eyes and asked, but why would I cry, Dad? (laughs) Uh, He'll be in heaven with Jesus, and that's a good thing. Uh, Those days of losing Joshua are blur. And that's probably God-imposed to protect my sanity, but who knows? I've known him less than any person I've ever known in my life, but I miss him more (laughs) than anyone I could have ever known. All right, Uh, the year following the triplet's birth uh, was difficult, to say the least. Uh, We were constantly reminded of our loss while struggling to keep our own heads above water. Every time we went out in public, a curious stranger would ask the inevitable question, Uh, about the identically dressed boys that sat in the car seats or um, shopping cart. Are they twins? Which, side note, 90% of the time we didn't dress them the same because it was cute. It was merely a survival mechanism, okay? If you have to grab an outfit quickly before one crawls away or the other grabs one by the ear, it's so much easier just to grab two of the same thing um, than it is to try and pick out two different outfits. So it may look adorable at times, but it was merely just for us to survive. While the question of whether they were twins or not may seem like a simple one, it's actually very complex. If a pair of humans are twins and one sadly passes away, they don't cease to be twins. They're still always twins. Um, But most people don't ask whether a single child is a twin because that would be weird. We don't just go up to each other and say, are you a twin? Are you a twin? Are you a twin? Unless you know. But when you see two of the same baby dressed identically out in public, it seems obvious that they would be twins. We felt and continue to feel that if people ask the question and dig into the personal lives of strangers, um, then we had the right, nay, the honor of defending the legacy of our deceased son by always including him in the conversation. We never and will never downgrade Dave and Sam to twins, and we refuse to call them that to this day. All three of their birth certificates read triplet. Initially, we would answer the question of twins pretty sarcastically um, and with a a lot of frustration and sadness and say, no, they're triplets, one of them passed away. Well, that effectively ended any conversation uh, and interaction with any strangers immediately. Uh, Once in a while, people would reply with a snarky comment as they walked away, something like, well, you didn't have to make it awkward, or, geez, that was rude, why'd they have to bring up their dead kid? which, admittedly, we did not handle with the necessary grace, and it led to more than a few arguments in the Costco parking lot. So if you happen to come across this during that time, I apologize if you witnessed us in that state. Um, However, in the years since, it's been easier, because now we turn to Dave and Sam and ask them the question, are you guys twins? Um, To which they replied to the strangers, no, we're triplets. And that always takes the pressure off of us with an adorable response from one of the boys. Katie and I have found grace in our response as of late, merely answering with a polite, no, they're not, 
um, when asked the twin question. If they pry deeper, then we've tried to turn it into an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Uh, we figure if they're asking a fairly personal question of our family, then we can ask them a fairly personal question about, our, uh, about their standing within our spiritual family. Uh, all in all, the boys, as we call them, uh, Dave and Sam, they're five now. They ride bikes, they climb trees, and they fill every hour, uh, every waking hour, and sometimes non-waking hours. Uh, Nick is 10, and he still has memories of Maddie and Zane and Joshua. But he's a pretty amazing kid in his own right, if I do say so myself. He's handled more tragedy in his young life than a lot of adults, and he's done so like a champ. Uh, so, while I've told you a lot of the good stuff, and some of the sad stuff, I left out a lot, a lot of the sinful stuff. Rest assured, my life has been full of it in the last 38 years uh, that I've been standing here on this ground. In spite of all of it, though, the good and the sad and the sin, God is still faithful, and God is still trustworthy. His promises are true, and his, love, and his love is sure. Sometimes things happen in our lives that we can't explain. Uh, sometimes we don't like it. We downright hate the things that happen in our lives, and they make us angry. Um, but my prayer is that in spite of tragedy, in spite of disappointment and hurt and frustration, you'll remember that you and I serve a God who has everything in control. Nothing falls outside of his will. There's comfort in that. Katie and I had a family member say to us when something tragic happened in his life, that it had to be Satan thwarting God's plan, and that's all that gave him comfort. There was no way that God could have allowed something so evil to have occurred um, that would cause this man so much pain. But I have news for all of us. God uses evil for good. Look at the cross. Could something more evil have ever occurred in the history of mankind? One man bearing the guilt and penalty for the crimes, the sins of so many that he had never committed, not a single one, suffering in the worst way possible, having his father turn his back on him uh, to allow it to occur, severing the best relationship he'd ever had from eternity past, all for the people that spit on him, beat him, crucified him, despised him, hated him, and rejected him. And yet, God planned it all, and he used it for his good. I'm not trying to demean or lessen any of your sorrows or personal tragedies. The exact opposite, actually. Our struggles and our difficulties should bring us closer to the Lord, showing our need to trust in him and give us strength when we have none. We all have struggles to varying degrees. Some have lost jobs, some have been fired, some can't find a job. Some have painful relationships, some severed relationships, some no relationships. Some have miscarried, lost a young child, lost an older child, lost a parent, lost a loved one. But my plea to you tonight is that we all have stories of pain. It's part of the human experience. And I pray that my story, both the good and bad, the sinful and the righteousness, uh, that it would make your life, that you would realize in your life that life can be easier or harder uh, depending on how you address it with the Lord. I'm a sinner walking through life that is often filled with joy and sometimes great sadness. But the reason I'm still walking, the reason I will never give up, is because I trust that the Lord loves me, that he sent his son to die for me, will sustain me in good times and bad, and that he planned it all for my good and his glory. The only way I can think of to end my time tonight uh, is with an exclamation mark from God's word by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. So this is how we'll end. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. 
And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we'll finish with this question from 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen.